you keep uh, your Bibles open in, in front of you, I'm just going to look. Uh, we're going to go through the text, the short bit of text. You may find it helpful to have it with you. What we find is in this passage, right at the start of Luke's gospel, is that Luke confronts one of the most significant issues that anybody who um, comes with a certain mind has when looking at the person of Jesus or looking to, to explore the issue of Christianity. Luke is writing to someone called most excellent Theophilus, as he calls him. He's writing to a cultured, educated man of significance and of position. Luke immediately is addressing what the average educated person comes to and wonders about, which is this. How do we know this is true? How do, how do we know this is true? How do we know that what we're reading is reliable? How do I know the account you're giving me is something that I can trust, that I can put my trust in? And for many of us, it's the same question for us today. How do I know that what we're reading is reliable? How can I put my faith and my trust in what Luke is saying, what Luke is giving account of? So first, we're going to look at three things this morning uh, about this that uh, help us a little bit. First, I'm going to look at the fact that the good news is all about Jesus. It's a true story of Jesus. Now, that might seem obvious to us today. It might seem obvious for me to say that. But at the beginning, he says this. I'm going to give you an account of what he calls the things that have been fulfilled among us. What he's saying is this. It's quite an unusual verse. It's quite an unusual way of describing it. If you look at verse 1, it's a very odd phrase. What he's saying is this. He's saying in Christ Jesus, history is being fulfilled. Jesus Christ's life is the proof and the fulfillment of God's work through the history, through history and in the world. Dick Lucas is a minister who comes from the more conservative end of the church tradition, so he's someone who's very bright and very educated and very able, and in that tradition, having your arguments lined up is particularly important. But he was, he said this, he was reading an essay from a skeptic about Christianity who had written to him and who said something like this. He said, I'd love to believe in God. I really would but it isn't possible. I could believe in God this morning, or I could believe God said this skeptic. If someone would just come along and give me a watertight, no holes, inescapable argument that seals the deal in a waterproof way, without a single hole in it, then, if you give me that argument, I'll believe. But Lucas said in his sermon, he said this, I don't think God has provided us with a watertight, infallible argument. Though I know some of you would disagree with me about that. What God has provided us with is a watertight person. What God has provided us with is a watertight person with no holes in him. There's no escaping him. Jesus Christ is that watertight person against whom in the end there is no argument. 
If you'd said that to me when I was a student, I'd have argued with, with you quite a lot. But I agree with Dick Lucas. As I've thought about it over the years, and I think he's absolutely right. It's Jesus himself who is the inescapable, infallible person against whom all arguments come to a head. It's by looking at the life and the person of Jesus that people come to faith. Yes, we can argue about stuff. Yes, we can debate stuff. Yes, there's logic and there's reason and we can go all these things. But at the end of the day, it comes to Jesus. And as we go through the Gospel of Luke, as we look through the Gospel of Luke, looking at who Jesus is, we'll discover in Jesus a person who is unbelievably open. He's outrageous and welcoming and empowering to the type of people that really you would not expect him to be. He's inclusive of people who are outsiders and outcasts. He's not necessarily the person we think. You're going to see him reaching out again and again to the poor, to women, to children, to prostitutes, to lepers, and to collaborators, and to the Gentiles. He's reaching out way beyond what we would normally expect. And when we read this, particularly we read this in today's times, in this particular century, in this particular time, in this culture, we love that about Jesus. Jesus is reaching out to all. The Son of Man came to seek and save all. It's not for a select few. But what we'll discover at the same time is this. At the same time as seeing that about Jesus, you're going to see Jesus making claims about himself that are by the standards of anybody in today's society, we would say, that's sort of a bit like a megalomaniac. Is he really saying that? He claims to be the judge of the world on the last day. He claims to be the author and giver of life. He claims to be the lone authority to forgive you, to forgive you of your sins. He claims he's equal to the Father. He claims he's been sending the prophets to the world over the centuries. That's the Jesus, too, that we'll discover. How will we make sense of those two aspects of Jesus' life, of Jesus' person? Who's someone who made such bold claims about who, who he was? yet was also so beautiful, so tender, so kind, and so humble. So kind, so beautiful, so humble, that all sorts of people chose to follow him. Hundreds of people who wanted to follow him and to be with him, including the Jews, the, the Jews who you wouldn't expect to believe in him. Over the years, millions, billions of people have looked at the person of Jesus and said, do you know what? This person, Jesus, is inescapable. He must be who he said he is. He must. There can be no other explanation. See, the thing is this as well, amongst all the rationalization, if you come out from the darkness into the light, if the sun comes up, and you feel the warmth of the sun upon your life. Bright, hot, warming sun. You don't need someone to come up to you to spend their time arguing about the reality of it. You sit there and embrace the warmth of that. 
You embrace the warmth. You embrace the light. You taste the gloriousness of God in the inescapable, unparalleled person of Jesus Christ. If you're sat here this morning, if you're sat here this morning longing for God in 2019, if you're longing for what God wants for you, my suggestion, my only suggestion really to you this morning, look to Jesus. Look to Jesus. And Luke says, I'm going to show you Jesus. I'm going to show you the person of Jesus. Secondly, we see that the good news is true. This is very important. It says it's true. It's not a legend. It's not a myth. It's true. It's true. These things happened. In verses 2 and verse 3, what we see is he says here is that here's where I got my information. He says, first, there are eyewitnesses to who Jesus was and what he did and what Jesus said. Jesus' ministry took place in, out in public. It wasn't in private. It wasn't in locked buildings. It was out there amongst where the people were. Thousands witnessed what Jesus said and what Jesus did. It was public and out in the open. Secondly, they be- delivered what they said, saw to us, it says. The Greek word here, it says that they delivered. So first, it was public. Secondly, they delivered what they saw to us. What they're saying is this. There was an oral tradition. The Greek word here is paradosis. And it's a technical term for passing on information from one person to the next without changing it. It's where we can take confidence in it. You don't revise to it. You don't add it. You don't change it. You pass it on. And Luke also says this, he says, then thirdly, he says, I've followed all these things closely and I've written an account for you. I've written an account for you. I've investigated it. I've done the hard work of investigating. He was a physician. He was used to doing detail. It was part of who he was. I've looked at the Isle of Witness work. I've followed the accounts and I've put them into an orderly account for you. Now, the average person who you see that, you say, well, Luke is saying this is true. If you said that to someone, the average person in Bath, maybe today, to know the people you work with, the people you spend your time with, some of the things you read in here may seem a bit fantastical. Say, well, do you know what? It's probably myth and legend. Can't trust it. Can't trust what we read. But there are three, I just want to briefly go through three key reasons why what we're reading today and what we spend time talking about each Sunday isn't myth and legend. The three key reasons that we go to again and again and again, which means that we can have confidence in what is in here. Firstly, is this. It's the fact that the timing of the writing of these Gospels, of this Gospel, is just too early for myth or legend. King Arthur, for example, if he lived, he lived in the 5th or 6th century AD. But the first written hand counts that came down were written 400 years after whether he lived or died, 400 years after uh, he's alleged to have lived. Problem is, there's no witnesses, there's no eyewitnesses, there's nobody to go to to say, was that true? Did that happen? To check whether things have been enhanced, whether they've been revised, or whether they've been added to. And when there's no checks, when there's no balances, when there's no person to go to, what we say is, they're legends. Luke wrote this account, and by the way, every historian agrees that this was written within 20, 20 to 35 years after the life of Jesus, in which case most of the eyewitnesses would still have been alive, would have still been around. And the thing with a legend is you can't just make it up when, major pub, when it's all done in public and the people are still 
around to see it. You see, Luke was not writing centuries afterwards. He was writing when almost immediately after the events of Jesus' life. And you can't make up a story about Jesus going to feed 5,000 people, for example, in the wilderness, unless something actually happened in the wilderness. Because you've friends and you've got enemies, you've got people who are alive who are able to attest to it. You can't just make it up. And the timing, therefore, the timing of the writing of the Gospels is too early for legends. Secondly, the, one of the major reasons we can take confidence that it's not a legend, it's not a myth, that it's true and it's something we can trust, is that you'll notice in the, if you read the Bible closely and if you look at what's in it, you'll see that some of the things in the Bible is actually counterproductive if you're trying to establish and maintain the idea that it's a myth or a legend. What do I mean? You look at the counts of Jesus' life and you see... You looked at people say, well, can I trust it? It was given to us by people who had an agenda. People wrote with an agenda to, to, to kind of people to believe in Jesus. But if you look at the account of Jesus' life, you realize it wasn't written with that in mind. What do I mean? What I mean is that you just look at some of the things that are in there and realize that they make no sense if it was trying to make people believe. But the fact that, that some of the accounts of Jesus' life and what happened look counterproductive to actually what they're trying to achieve. Why is that? So an example, look at Jesus' birth. We've just been through Christmas. We've just celebrated uh, Jesus' birth. And you look at the eyewitnesses at the birth of Jesus. Who were the eyewitnesses at the birth of Jesus? The shepherds. The least trustworthy people of the society. The dregs, in many ways, of the society of time. Everybody knew that. We also have Jesus born to a teenage unmarried mother, which at the time was a disgraceful and utterly repellent and repugnant to first century readers they were reading. And the reason for that is this, it's the only historically plausible explanation is this. It happened. It happened, you wouldn't make it up if you're trying to perpetuate a myth or a legend, because actually the content and the substance it's counter, would be counterproductive. There's no other good reason to explain it. Thirdly is this, is the fact that, that you look at the style of the scriptures, if you look at the scriptures, you look at the gospel accounts generally, but you'll notice there's lots of detail in there that isn't just detail of a story being made up or a myth or a legend, but actually is an account. Things like you read the account of Jesus stilling the storm and you find him asleep on a pillow. Why is it in there? Is it in there because actually it makes it look better? No, it's just in there because that's showing that that was there, that happened. It was a real bit of information. It's detail that shows that people were writing an account of Jesus' life. Those three reasons are the three reasons why essentially we can have confidence that these are a true account, is that they were written very close to the end of Jesus' life. But actually, they'd be counterproductive given some of the, the, the accounts in there. And then thirdly, in the detail of it, we'll see they look and read like an account of what happened rather than trying to airbrush things. Luke is going to enormous pains as a man who did detail to say to his readers, the story of Jesus is the true story of Jesus. Believe the good news of Jesus not because it's nice, not because it's dramatic, not because it's a good story, 
believe the story of Jesus because it's true. And because if the story of Jesus, let's be honest, isn't true, this story is of no help to you this morning. If the story of Jesus is not true, the story of Jesus is of no help to us this morning. It might be touching. We might look at that story and think, well, that's quite inspiring. It might be quite exciting in places to think about that. It might be moving. But if it's not true, ultimately, it's useless. And the third thing that we see at the beginning here of Luke's gospel is it's a narrative. It's an account. It's a story. Look at verse 1. What Luke is trying to put together is a narrative of Jesus' life. It's the word diegesis, which means it's a story, it's an account of Jesus' life. Why is that important? Why is that particularly important? It's the fact that this, and we'll see this as we go through the gospel, is that the good news of Jesus is not teachings. The good news of Jesus is not sayings. A series of vignettes that show us a good way to live. As so many people say, Jesus shows us a good way to live. Good principles to live life by. But Jesus, the gospel account is a narrative account of the life of Jesus. Why is this so important? Why is that distinction so important this morning? Because it's not the teachings of Jesus that save us. It's the actions of Jesus that save us. It's Jesus' life that saves you and I. It's not his teachings. What saves you is the fact that Jesus came, he was given, he was born, he lived, he died, he was resurrected and ascended to bring us life. It's a story and actions and the account of Jesus' life that means that we can be saved by grace and by grace alone. Why is this so important? Because if you read the teachings of Jesus, as we're going to spend some time reaching the teachings of Jesus, I'd suggest to you this morning, actually some of the teachings of Jesus, and quite a bit of the teaching of Jesus, is not inspirational. It's not elevating. Actually, some of the teaching of Jesus is devastating. It's absolutely devastating. If you read what Jesus says and what he thinks and what he expects of us, actually, it can be devastating. What do I mean? Well, we'll have a look and we'll read them. But let me give an example of what I mean by that. Virginia Owens is a, a professor of English at university. And she, most of her students, she knew most of her students who came to university had heard that this thing about the Sermon on the Mount. But they'd never read the Sermon on the Mount, had read some time into the Sermon on the Mount, and that we'll see when we get to Luke 6. So she asked them, as one of her exercises on this kind of English course, to go away and read Luke 6 and to see what they made of it. And then after they'd read it, to write a paper on the Sermon on the Mount, one of Jesus' most famous teachings. And what she said was this. She said the, the, the papers were remarkable. Here's what one student said about the Sermon on the Mount. I did not like the Sermon on the Mount. It made me feel like I had to be perfect, and nobody is. Nobody is. Another student said this, the things the sermon asks for are stupid. Absolutely stupid. And Virginia Owens said this, she said that the students essentially noted, first, Jesus doesn't just require that we give most of our money or our, uh, away, 
but we're called to give our money away joyfully. Secondly, Jesus didn't just forbid killing people, but he forgets disdaining people, feeling superior to people, and even treating someone with coldness or indifference. And you can imagine how that went down in a university setting, a particular group of students. And then she said this, thirdly, Jesus not, doesn't just say, I can't revenge myself on someone who's done me wrong, on someone who's persecuting me, but I have to love them. I have to care for them. That I'm called to bless them, the very person who's persecuting me. Jesus also, as we read through it, doesn't, doesn't just say, forbid worry. He says, I have to live gratefully and happily and content with the circumstances that I find myself in. What Virginia Owens noted was two things from the teachings of Jesus. And it's the same for us, I'd say, today. On the one hand, as we read the teachings of Jesus, you know, unavoidably, this is the kind of world I want to be in. This is the kind of world that Jesus is talking about that I'd love to be in, that actually I was created for, that I was made for. This is the way we all need to live, that it's wonderful, it's gracious, it's joyful, it's peaceful, it's all the things that actually it should be. Yet, we know it's impossible. Yet we know achieving that standard, that way, is impossible. The only reasonable uh, response to the kind of the whole reality of, the, of Jesus' teachings would be, God, save me from the Sermon on the Mount. Because the Sermon on the Mount exposes in us, exposes in me the hardness of my heart, the weakness within me, the brokenness within me, the sinfulness within me. It exposes me for who I am as well. And it strips me, it strips me to the core because it brings judgment to my life. Save me from the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus didn't didn't come on this earth to come and just provide us some lovely teachings or to inspire us to live better or harder. Jesus came to live the life that we were called to live. And he died the death that we should have died so that we can live the life he's called us to. And he comes to save us. He comes to save us. Jesus primarily, the true story of Jesus, is about the saviour of the world who comes to us. Our greatest need, our primary need, is for a saviour, not an advisor. Today we begin the journey, today we start the journey that we're going to take the year over to look at the good news of Jesus Christ. And today it begins, I'm just asking you to begin as a response to that is think about how can you can respond to that offer of salvation from God who comes to us. We're going to lead, um, we're going to have some time for response in the sermon. I'd like you to some quiet. And uh, two things really is this, is one of which is I'm going to leave some quiet. And you've got a prayer in front of you on this sheet, which is a famous prayer that's used at covenant service. Actually, it's used by Methodists. Methodists are okay, by the way. You know, they're not the heretics of the world. It's all right. We can love Methodists too, as well as other things. But actually, I would like you to look at that and say, this is a a prayer of commitment to God at the beginning of a new year. 
It's recognizing that our lives are in his hands and that we will receive what we have from him for good or for ill. So many of us spend all our lives trying to control the outcomes, control what we want. And then when it doesn't go the way we want to, we get grumpy, we get cross, we get difficult, and we get, get at war with God. And so this is a prayer that offers ourselves afresh, our whole of our lives into his hands. And so I'm going to leave you a bit of quiet to think, what is it you uh, need to pray? And then I'm, I will actually pray through these words, uh, and then we'll sing. Heavenly Father, we ask that you would fall afresh upon us. Come, Holy Spirit, I pray. Come, Holy Spirit, I pray. And would you do a work within us this year that we would see Jesus clearly, more clearly. And in seeing you, that you would enable us to walk with you faithfully. Would you strip away all the stuff that gets in the way and bring us back to you this year. Would you help us to see the steps each one of us can take in putting you first? Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these things will be added unto you. Father, thank you that you sent your son, Jesus, to be our savior. Thank you that you did that for me. Thank you that I can celebrate and sing because of who you are and all you've done as a gift of grace. Would you lift our heads up to see you afresh? In Jesus' name, amen. I'm going to ask you, if you'd like to, to join in by saying this prayer together, which is the prayer of commitment prayer together. Please don't join in with it if you can't pray it with integrity. Uh, but actually, if you'd like to pray this as a sign of your commitment to what God has called you to or God has for you this year, then I'd encourage you to join in with me and to pray this out aloud. Let's pray. 
Lord, I am no longer my own, but yours. Put me to what you will. Rank me with whom you will. Let me be employed by you or laid aside for you, exalted for you or brought low by you. Let me have all things. Let me have nothing. I freely and heartily yield all things to your pleasure and disposal. And now, O glorious and blessed God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, you are mine, and I am yours. So be it. Amen.